From Washington, this is the Macrocast, a podcast brought to you by Penta and Markets Policy Partners. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Macrocast. I'm your host, Elon Moy, a managing director at Penta, and I'm joined as always by Brendan Walsh and John Fagan from Markets Policy Partners. Hey, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Well, today's episode is all about jobs. The Labor Department has released its monthly employment report, and it seemed to be pretty much in line with what markets were expecting. The economy added 236,000 jobs in March, a slowdown from the start of the year and really since the start of the post-pandemic cycle, but a decent amount still. The unemployment rate edged down to 3.5% as people came back into the labor force. So, John and Brendan, what do you make of these numbers? Good, bad, or neutral? Yeah, right down the fairway, I guess uh, we've all got uh, golf on the brain with uh, the Masters on. So this really was, you know, a straight shot off the tee, as you said, Elon, right uh, right smack into consensus. And uh, and that's a good thing, boy, because, uh, you know, with markets closed for a lot of the markets closed for the holiday in the U.S., Good Friday holiday in other places overseas, that liquidity was always going to be low and you wouldn't want a big volatility inducing number. So this is a pleasant, a, uh, a pleasantly expected result uh, ahead of the long weekend. And markets are showing that very placid reaction, positive reaction, the same kind of reaction we got to the last non-farm payroll number, which showed this kind of Goldilocks uh, twinge to it, I guess, uh, when you looked at it, it had this, you know, the relatively tame average hourly earnings and so forth. So we're seeing, you know, a gentle upswing in uh, in equity futures and uh, and calm treasury markets. There actually are some, it's not troubling, but it, it it's a kind of a tale of two, uh, two cities. Uh, the the 180,000 uh, of the jobs were created by government, uh, healthcare, and education, and leisure and hospitality. Those were the three sectors that were heavily uh, affected by the by COVID, and they're kind of playing catch up. Uh, so that's a very good sign that people are, are finally being hired in those. But when you look at goods producing, they lost 7,000 jobs. Uh, retail trade lost 15,000 jobs. And construction was down 9,000. And also kind of uh, a little troubling because this tends to be a canary in the coal line. Uh, temporary help services lost eleven thousand jobs. That's always a leading indicator. So you're, you're, what you're kind of seeing is part of the economy that was heavily wiped out by by COVID playing catch up. But the the other parts of the the, the core parts of the economy are, are definitely slowing, which is the the, the goal of the Fed. Um, so I, I worry maybe that the Fed could uh, take this as a bit too. Uh, a strong of a of a report and over tightened, where there actually are some signs of um, of weakness within within this report. And, and just as an aside, yields are turning up a little bit uh, in the in the treasury markets, and so we are seeing some upside pressure. And I think that really speaks to what Brendan is, uh, has has pointed out that this you know, we saw a lot of uh, this week circle around relatively weaker jobs data that came out in uh, in advance of this non-farm payrolls number that it really settled down treasury yields over the past week or so and most of that gain is being kind of given back this morning and uh you know the it's still basically a coin flip um in terms of the fed outlook for uh, for the may uh, decision whether they're going to go 25 basis points or uh, or sit tight yeah, I, I think that some of the details of the report and seeing which sectors gained and lost jobs is really interesting. Brendan, I think that, you know, it seems to be a reflection of where we are, even in even when you look at the inflation numbers in terms of 
uh, inflation coming down for for goods and inflation still pretty hot for services. I, I yeah. thought you mentioned the construction sector in particular losing jobs. That was interesting just because of all of the uh, changes that we've seen in the housing market, rates coming down, maybe prices starting to to ease in housing, but still pretty strong. What do you make of the fact that we're seeing construction finally starting to weaken? I, I think it's, it's higher rates is is, is hurting the, the housing sector. Um, and it, you just can't afford because also the prices haven't dropped yet. So we're just not seeing many sales. So if you're a builder, you can't, you got to take out a loan now that it's twice as expensive as it used to be. And also, you don't know how long you're going to have to be sitting on that before it can sell. So I think uh, a lot of the the, the housing uh, construction uh, has just stopped building houses, uh, which is actually very dangerous because we we do have a shortage, still have a shortage of housing in, in most of the, the, the places. So what has to happen is prices need to start to, to fall. Uh, we're seeing it uh, slowly happen. Uh, but but a, we could really see a huge drop come this summer where uh, people just can't afford to to to, to keep paying the, the, those rates, um, and, and that will hugely show up in, in the in the inflation numbers because housing is such a large uh, component of it. it. It's already going to start uh, seeping into the CPI and PCE. Uh, you know, March will probably be the first one where we see negative uh, or yeah negative growth in the in the housing. Um, component, which that'll be a huge drag on the overall uh, inflation numbers. The other the good sign for inflation is the participation rate keeps going up. We're back to 62.6%. Uh, so that whole idea, you know, that the, the, the lost uh, people from COVID, uh, they are coming back. The most fascinating uh, data point I saw from this is the, um, the black employment to population ratio is now higher than the white employment to population ratio. And it's it's both uh, the the African-American rose, but also the, the, the white population to uh, employment has, has plummeted. Uh, it used to be about 65%. Now it's, it's at 60. Uh. <laughs> yeah, especially as you see the construction numbers start to weaken. I wonder what that's going to mean for white employment figures going forward. But I thought it was interesting when you brought up the the, the black employment numbers, the black unemployment rate fell from, I think, 5.7 to 5%, which may yeah. be a, maybe a like record. It, it's a record. It's never yeah. been this low. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's, you know, I think that creates, once again, another conundrum for the Fed, because do you need to have this hot of a labor market? Do you need to have this tight of a labor market to start to chip away at some of the longstanding inequalities that we've had, um, you know, in, in society for, for for a very long time. If the Fed is going to start to tighten, if the goal is to slow down the labor market, does that by proxy also mean that some of these um, benefits that we've seen, particularly for underserved communities, start to go away? Oh, it's a very important point. The Fed has a dual mandate and they're ignoring half of their mandate. They're, they're actually doing the exact opposite. They're trying to destroy the, the, the uh, employment uh, figures, uh, which uh, a lot of people are having a, a very hard time um, dealing with that, you know? Yeah, you also mentioned temporary employment as a potentially leading indicator. Yep. What do we see happen here? And then how does that normally uh, show what's going to happen in the future? How does that normally a predictor of, of future growth or, or future cuts? Yeah, so a year ago, we had uh, 28,000 uh, temp jobs. Uh, in January uh, 2023, we had 16, 17,000. And then last month, we had about 4,000. Now, negative uh, 11,000. 
And that's always just a very good sign of, of kind of startups. If, you, if you're starting a new company, you know, you don't hire everybody, you hire temps. And then if, if they're good, you, you, you take them on full time. Um, so if you're not hiring temps, that just is a, a very clear sign that economic activity is, is slowing. And I would expect that to slow even more, especially, you know, the, our mini banking crisis. I think the, the crisis part is over, but but banks are going to be lending less and um, and you're going to see less startups. You're actually already starting to see a tick up in uh, small business bankruptcy filings. Hmm, interesting. Uh, John, uh, you also mentioned that the sort of quieter jobs number that we saw today was reflective of some of the other economic data that we got uh, earlier in the week. Uh, what did that portend? Yeah, earlier in the week, I'll let Brendan get into more of the details of it. But we had the uh, job openings and uh, and the jolts, the job openings and levers, right? <laughs> they act, I'm uh, job openings and labor turnover. Yeah. Yes, there you go. <laughs> and uh, and we saw the uh, the ADP uh, number that uh, the payroll giants uh, estimate of non-farm payrolls was a little on the light side, um, and uh, and these kind of kindled this. Uh, concern about growth uh, that had been overshadowed by the bank, you know, with the market really focused on the acute phase of the banking issues, you know, once that had passed, now markets are free to, you know, cast their view a little bit further out. And what they're seeing is probably this, as Brendan alluded to, this tightening of monetary conditions that flows from the problems in the banks hitting the economy. And if you had, you know, uh, you know, if you were sort of 50-50 on recession later this year, well, that's going to just tip the balance in in favor of a, of a contraction potentially. And so we've seen uh, a little bit on uh, on that kind of price action. We've seen the yield curve, um, re, you know, inverting more deeply the treasury yield curve, which is a classic harbinger uh, of, of coming recession. And as we've alluded to um, multiple times, that great divergence between the Fed's rate outlook and where Fed fund futures are. Fed fund futures are pricing in between 50 and 75 basis points of rate cuts before year end. That would assume a very dire uh, economic outcome. Uh, so the message from the bond market is very glum. The message from equity markets is, you know, a little bit tentative and nervous and the dollar doesn't seem to know which way to go. Yeah. The dollar is really just uh, stuck there. And even we can get into it later, but you know, OPEC, you know, cut a million barrels and we had, you know, a 5% jump, but now it's petered out. Uh, it, it's hard for for any any asset that trades off of global growth to get too out of control right now. The the China is growing below what they they, they even uh, thought. And um, and Europe is also slowing at a, a similar place to to the United States. Yeah, we're going to talk about oil prices in, in just a little bit, but um, just sticking with the jobs report for now. If we keep getting numbers like this, does that mean the Fed still needs to hike because the market is still too hot? It's still high enough to to drive inflation. Or if we keep getting numbers like this, does this mean the Fed can sort of stay the course? Is this is this enough? I think the the futures markets are basically giving the Fed kind of a, a an amber light, so to speak. You know, it's a basically. Yeah. If they if they hike 25 basis points in May, it's not going to be a big surprise. If they hold, it's not going to be a big surprise either. If they were to you know hike rates, it's probably going to be accompanied by relatively more dovish communications alongside that, focusing on you know the question about about future growth and that sort of thing. If they hold, they would probably balance that out with uh, with slightly more hawkish intonations uh, around the uh, around the decision and you know 
emphasize that they can still go higher if they need to and, and so forth. So May is sort of, I, I wouldn't call it a layup for <laughs> the Fed. Nothing is easy uh, in this environment. But uh, but the market seems to be, you know, letting the Fed uh, make make the call. Now, you know, a 50 basis point would be a big shock, but uh, we don't think that that's, uh, that's on the table at all. Well, well after the ISM number uh, earlier this week, which was very, very weak, uh, much below expectations, the, the Fed fund's future for the first time put the odds of a 25 basis point hike at the next meeting below 50%. So it's only slightly below, but that hasn't happened in a, in a while. Do we need to see the labor market cool even further over the next few months in order for us to see a meaningful drop in inflation? Not inflation, but I, I do think for the Fed to stop hiking. The, the Fed always hikes too much, and, and these guys seem intent to, to, to do it. Bullard is you know, saying the banking crisis is over. We need to keep hiking. They're going to make the mistake. Um because they're 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 looking at very backward uh, indicators, and the labor market is an incredibly backward looking indicator. Uh, this this data today is strong enough to, if in their metrics, to justify. But if you actually take a step outside and look, what's really going on? I think that the economy is really slowing, and I also think that they're massively uh, underestimating how much the lack of uh, loan growth that's going to happen is going to slow the the U.S. economy. So the Fed is looking backward, but we are going to continue to look forward. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we will take a closer look at oil prices and what's going to be happening in the week ahead. Stay tuned. On the first Friday of every month, Penta analyzes the latest jobs and labor market data in a digestible format. Sign up for our reports at pentagroup.co or on Twitter at PentaGRP. And we're back with a macrocast. Talking, of course, with Brendan Walsh and John Fagan of Markets Policy Partners. So this is spring break season, and many of you may be listening to this podcast as you are driving to the beach. Gas prices, of course, are top of mind during the season. And as we head into the summer, they've come down a lot since they peaked at about $5 a gallon last year. But they've started to move up again in the first few months of this year. And now, of course, Saudi Arabia and other OPEC countries have announced a surprise cut in production, slashing more than a million barrels a day starting in May, which means that prices in the future at the pump and for oil markets are going to rise. Not necessarily a good sign for inflation or for the White House or for your wallet. So Brendan and John, help us understand what's happening here. First of all, just break down, why did OPEC take this move? Yeah, so it was very unexpected. It caught markets offside and uh, and so resulted in a pretty uh, pretty swift uh, upswing in prices a really shocked upswing in prices almost ten dollars a barrel like right out of the gate once they uh, once they started trading they announced it over uh, last weekend and uh, and essentially this was uh, in response to having oil prices kind of languishing around 16 month lows right I mean these were uh, not by historical standards, rock bottom uh, oil prices. We're talking about like you know for Brent crude, low 80s, you know high 70s, uh, and uh, and that's you know that's a very comfortable kind of price for a lot of producers, particularly in the Middle East and OPEC. But you know the question really was about the the future demand. We've seen uh, OPEC under the you know current Saudi uh, energy ministry leadership really being proactive and leaning into the markets um, and uh, and trying to get ahead of developments. And you know they've been vindicated. They cut um, they 
they cut production last year, which wasn't appreciated by the Biden administration, but it certainly didn't, you know, send prices uh, skyrocketing that uh, it sort of was more of a controlled descent. And uh, to the extent that they're looking out and uh, not liking what they see in terms of the demand picture, well, you know, you can perhaps justify it in that in that way. That from the Biden administration, this is not helpful. They criticized it as they would. Uh, and uh, it's sort of, you know, as part of the mosaic that's forming of, uh, you know, geostrategic alignment uh, that's adverse to the United States in the Middle East and, you know, with sort of Russia, China um, and uh, and so forth. It's an, another sort of troubling aspect uh, showing some, uh, you know, that U.S. power is being countered and uh, U.S. Uh, influence is being countered in certain areas. But on the other side, you know, the Biden administration had said that they were going to be filling up the strategic petroleum reserve under $80 a barrel. You know, and there seemed like this demand, you know, it, it's this demand kind of had put a floor under prices, but it, it appeared that they weren't that they weren't going to be stepping into the market. And so I think uh, that's that's when OPEC sort of took their cue. John, when do we find out whether they bought? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know when they uh, the the exact like publications are. But, yeah. uh, you know, the expectation is that that, you know, the the Saudis are um the Saudis are looking out at the at the demand picture and they're not sure they like what they see. And uh, and that's, you know, another uh, another relatively, you know, grim harbinger of uh, of the coming quarters. Yeah. For context, just, you know, what matters to us is the gas prices. So uh, a week ago, uh, the average price in America was three dollars and fifty cents. So it went up eight cents uh, this week, which is only two percent. But it is it'll probably keep climbing. But uh, more importantly, a year ago, the average was $4.15. So we are down considerably from where we were uh, in 2022. Yeah. And it bears mentioning that the initial shock upside in oil prices that followed the announcement really came off quite a lot. And yeah. uh, oil prices are really only up five bucks since that announcement, which isn't nothing, but, um, you know, is far from shooting the moon. Yeah, it's about 5%. Uh, you know, there's a if you if you have a more bullish outlook on the global economy, the, you know that's causing some uh, big investment banks and so forth to mark up uh, a couple of quarters out, like a ninety to one hundred dollars barrel as their uh, as their target prices as the market tightens up. Uh, you know, these cuts come online in May, uh, for instance. So uh, that's that's certainly a possibility um, and uh, and one to one to watch, which would be you know obviously a headwind on growth if if oil prices are are chasing up. Uh, along with uh, a global recovery, though the wild card on on future uh, oil prices is that our shale production has been flat. We we kind of the the that that whole industry got consolidated. So now it's kind of adults in charge. Uh, where you know previously, as soon as you had a chance, people were pumping. So the the United States uh, production has really been flat over the last couple of years. So if we do see a, an uptick in global growth. Um, you're going to see the United States pump a lot more because we have the capacity to do it. Yeah, I I think one of the questions I had just out of the conversation that you all just um, just had as well is that is this a reasonable move by Saudi um, because they are estimating or they are expecting to see demand to become weaker. If we are ex expecting a recession here in the US, if Chinese demand is not uh, reaching the heights that folks had expected coming out of their COVID lockdowns, then maybe this move makes sense, even if it was something that was a surprise to the markets. 
Yeah, I think it it's certainly that that's certainly uh, a valid justification. And you know, as as I mentioned before, that the previous time uh, last fall when they cut prices, I mean, looking back on it, they seem to be relatively well vindicated um, in the way that the market has behaved, and uh, and they did encounter you know a soft patch in growth. So. You know, uh, if however, if flash forward, you know, a couple of quarters, and we're at a hundred dollars a barrel, and uh, and you know, the global economy isn't in great shape, uh, and uh, and oil prices are are that high, that's not a particularly positive formulation. That's stagflationary uh, challenge, and makes you know the Fed's life you know that much harder. John, you also mentioned sort of shifting geopolitical alliances. There, perhaps alluded to it. You know, there's been some talk about whether uh, Saudi is shifting closer to China and some discussion around whether it might consider pricing sales of oil to China in yuan instead of in dollars. Seems like that would be a major uh, development in terms of, you know, whether the dollar could remain the world's reserve currency. Um, it seems like it would have major political implications in terms of the closeness of the relationship between Saudi Arabia and China. Do you see any risk of? de-dollarization here? Well, I think that there's, you know, the the sort of scary stories and scary headlines about de-dollarization, these crop up ever so often, right? And, uh, you know, this is not the first time we've heard this. Uh, this is something of a novel formulation, obviously, and the geostrategic backdrop is uh, potentially more worrisome than it has been in previous episodes. But at the end of the day, the dollar has an enormous, first of all, the dollar has an enormous lead, right? And uh, And it has a you know, it's just things that you want to buy and the debt that you want to service is in dollars, right? And that's for the most part. And that's the problem with the renminbi. If you get, you know, if you sell oil for renminbi, what do you do with that renminbi? You want to get rid of it because there's not that much you can buy with it. And the Chinese government is very tightly controlling the renminbi. They don't let it be broadly convertible outside of China. And so, you know, they- And they also, it's also pegged. So you you can't have reserve currency that isn't free floating. So if, if if China decided they wanted to do it and they let it flow, where where would the yuan be trading? Yeah, well, that's the thing. They can't possibly, you know, let go of the yeah. the controls that they have over the over the currency. They don't want to, you know, lose control of interest rates and uh, and all of the other things that come along with truly internationalizing your country. If you know, if you want to create a relatively kind of closed loop system where you have you know a group of like-minded, you know, countries that come together and trade with the renminbi and it and it circulates properly, well, you, maybe you can maybe you can uh, you know, establish something like that. But I I think it's you know, when it comes to reserve currency status, the renminbi is far from ready from for prime time and uh, you know, from the perspective of the treasury where I used to work, the view inside, there's a lot, you know, the, the Treasury Secretary comments on the dollar, right? And so as a Treasury employee, it's uh, not something you want to go shooting your mouth off about. Uh, and uh, so, but, you know, inside the uh, inside the halls of the Treasury, there are some vigorous uh, debates and discussion about the dollar that, you know, the public will not ever be privy to. And, uh, you know, the sort of character of a lot of these discussions when it comes to things like, uh, you know, the concept of the dollar as the global reserve currency, I can tell you that like the basic philosophy that animated uh, the the discussions under both what I served uh, under the Obama administration and the Trump administration. And uniformly, it was a sense of if we keep our house in order as a country and we, you know, and we make economic policy such that our, you know, our markets are vibrant and deep 
and our companies are strong and, you know, and our economy is, is the envy of the world and so forth, then the dollar's reserve currency status will take care of itself. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a result of the, the, you know, the good work that we do to keep, you know, the, uh, the, the country and the country's economy and society strong and, uh, and the dollar's reserve currency status will take care of itself if we take care of those fundamentals. And I think that's a very healthy posture to adopt. So oil prices and obviously the job support, the big news on the economic front. But of course, there was also big news on the political front this week as well, with former President Trump formally indicted on more than 30 counts of business fraud. Obviously, a historic moment uh, in terms of politics, first president ever to be charged with a crime. But is it something that the markets really responded to or will respond to in the future as this investigation and as this trial goes on? Yeah, it's it's pretty hard to see if there were, you know, even a flicker of any any reaction in financial markets to this event. You know, newsworthy doesn't always uh, move markets. And uh, and I think this is probably one of those cases. The, you know, obviously uh, markets struggle to price in political outcomes. You know, remember Brexit (laughs) and some of these other, you know, surprise votes. Uh, tend to catch markets uh, off guard and uh, just you know uh, these they're inherently unpredictable and markets get offside and and so forth so politics tends to be left until you know there's a really near term um you know election day or something that is you know close on the calendar that you can begin to trade within the you know the investable future of you know just a few weeks on some of these trades so for instance like before the election in 2020, you could see sort of the Biden basket, right? You'd see like clean energy stocks and the yeah, ETF yeah, yeah. for, you know, infrastructure going up. And after the two uh, special election Senate wins in Georgia, you saw infrastructure stocks jump. And so you can see these these patterns of political trading, but they, you know, they don't tend to be, you know, all that far ahead of, of particular political events. So I think this one pretty much passed unnoticed by markets, but, you know, politics can certainly move it, you know, down the road as we get closer to election day. I think the more important political event from this week was Speaker McCarthy going on Bloomberg and warning that we're probably going to default on our debt because he's not be able to talk to Biden. So that, that is one that the market is definitely not pricing in. And and it, it's one of those things that the black swan event. So, I mean, you, you can't really assume that it's going to happen because it usually doesn't. But we do think this one is at a minimum going to be a lot uh, closer than, than the previous episodes under Obama. They have time, right? They have right. so much time. They have time until they don't have any time, which is the problem, yeah. which is the I problem with Congress. Yeah. <laughs> well, great guys. Thank you so much. But let's just take a little few minutes to look ahead to next week. Um, Brendan, what's on your radar screen? Uh, the inflation number. So CPI is coming in next week. Uh, that'll be the, the big one for the, for, for next week. Uh, Pretty much everyone's on vacation too, right? (laughs) Well, the IMF World Bank meetings are also happening. Oh, you're right. Yes. So this is going to be definitely a a big one. Um, uh, There's a lot going on. The IMF just put out their uh, forecast and they they said the growth prospects is the worst it's been since uh, 1990. So there'll be a huge amount of discussion on that front. Uh, And then it looks like also um, the former uh, CEO of MasterCard, Anja Bagdad, is going to uh, be approved uh, for the to run the World Bank. So I think he's a he's a very impressive human being. Uh, and I think that was a great choice. And I think he can do a lot of really interesting, uh, innovative things here at the World Bank. Great. 
Thank you guys so much for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into the Macrocast. Uh, I'm Elon Moy with Penta. Thank you to John and Brendan from Markets Policy Partners for joining me. Remember to like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share. 